0: Thank you for joining us in Season 2 of the real Legion Podcast, where a rabbi and a reverend walk into a podcast and talk real about religion.
1: Joel, good afternoon.
0: Howdy, Rabbi Eric. How are you down there in the Georgia world? I am wonderful. Today is the first day of sabbatical. Nuh-uh. I, I did not yeah. catch that up. Oh my gosh! So what have you written Day today? One,
1: I wrote sixteen hundred words.
0: You lie.
1: No, sixteen hundred. <laughs> I didn't say they were good or coherent, but they they are sixteen hundred words, and I and I didn't do the uh, thing that I I joked with with a friend of just saying all work and no play makes Eric a dull boy, and then copying and pasting that. I did not do that. <laughs>
0: Good. That, but, uh, that wouldn't count. No, no Harry Potter. Write yeah. in your own blood moments.
1: No, no. There's full sentences, subject, noun, agreement. Hopefully, thoughts progressing to more thoughts. We'll see. I actually have a a wonderful uh, congregant and friend uh, volunteered to read and make suggestions and edit. And this is person who. This is a person who. Um, is an accomplished writer and thoughtful and smart and all those wonderful things. And and it'll keep me to task, which is also good.
0: Nice. If you're like me, the early writings suck. But through the editing process, they become something that is semi-understandable.
1: Absolutely. Absolutely. Um, but I, I do have a funny story that is relevant to our podcast. I had a Joel moment today. Uh-oh. <laughs> I almost channeled you and then I didn't. I instead I walked out. So I was sitting at a, a local coffee shop that we have been to many times. And uh, I was the only person in it, sat down, had my computer, my coffee, uh, a nice sugary snack, uh, and was writing and these two gentlemen come in and it, it was funny because they they sat right next to me at the table next to me. Not that this is a huge place, but you know, so I'm al- I'm already a little bit annoyed, right? Like, it's like <laughs> couldn't they pick another table? And they start talking about the church, Jesus, this, Jesus, that, which you know is fine. And and I happen to know that um, uh, there's lots of different Christian study groups that meet at coffee shops. Like, you know, that's great. Um, but then they started talking about a, they can't believe that there are Christian clergy. Uh, that accept the sin of homosexuality. Aha. And it was at that moment that I, I had the slight thought of engaging them as I'm writing, you know, Jewish theology and, and things like that. And then I thought that, nope, my time will be better served by working out and then coming back after they've left, which is exactly what I did.
0: <laughs> <laughs> Nicely done, Mr. Sabbatical. That's, that is the way to Sabbat. Out of your, out of your uh, dilemma there. But I, may I but guess I, that these know, were two males who are having this conversation.
1: Two males, yes. I, I also was, uh, I, you know, the, rephrasing. What would Jesus do? What would Joel do? Would Joel <laughs> engage them? Would Joel certainly? You'd roll your eyes and be annoyed or disgusted. But. Um, You know, I I I was wondering if you would actively oh baby yeah sure because that's
0: not a street corner so I'm not banned from doing that by my family anymore. But I would have said, ooh, here's one (laughs) of those clergy who does. What would you like to ask me? Um, Shall we discuss it in Uh, detail? And uh, I think uh, we have an episode not too far off in our future this summer where we get into that very topic.
1: Can we? get you in a time machine and, and because I would I, I would pay a lot of money just to watch that conversation because you handle those things so well and I just love watching you do that
0: Oh I I hate them Eric they they suck and the amount of I don't know spiritual discipline it takes to handle them with any grace at all is more than I have so usually about 20 minutes in I am on empty and when i go See, home I, I i need 6 hours just to become myself again
1: yeah. and well you and for me the, the reason i won't engage in things like that is because there are times that are thankfully rare in number but times when I get into those sorts of conversations with congregants, and these are people who I will see again, who I do have a relationship with. And so those are the ones that I find incredibly difficult because it's not like some stranger off the street that means nothing to me. Uh, I mean, you know what I mean. I don't mean to be disparaging, uh, or to seem disparaging. Um, but those conversations with, with beloved congregants, um, I find so difficult and, enervating and all those sorts of things
0: yes oh i yeah i think we get to that topic in august (laughs) so (laughs) yes
1: i I mean i think today's is i mean tangentially related although it it, it's important to make the distinction between gender and sexuality of course um but we're going to talk about gender identity and How our traditions in terms of texts, namely the Torah, Bible, New Testament, parse out gender and some women are definitely uh, not equal in the Torah. And I'm going to take a wild guess, Joel, uh, that's that's true in the New Testament as well. Uh,
0: Very much so. But hopefully in this conversation, I can... Take some violent texts that are very problematic when used improperly. And I can give some people that have been hurt by them another way to hear them so that they can resist those who would do violence with those texts and hear some of the progress and grace that was meant in those texts, uh, from their original context. But let's, let's figure out where do we start?
1: Well, I'll, I'll start with names. It's always been something I've been fascinated with, In, in namely uh, uh, <laughs> how children get their names in the Hebrew Bible. So, you, you know, Abraham, Joseph, um, you know, all, all the names we have in the Hebrew Bible and, and what they mean. And it's always fascinated me that women, the mom – more often than not, by a huge by a huge percentage, does the naming of their baby, and that that is important because that is an act of power. I mean, if we go back to the story of creation, God parades all of the animals in front of Adam at the time to look for a partner, um, and Adam names them, thus conferring some kind of responsibility or ownership, perhaps. Um, But on the flip side of that, lots of times those names have to do with their relationship with their husband. And so uh, the child, I don't want to say is defined, but is named by what the wife wants or expects out of the husband. So um, a a perfect example of this, if not the prime example of this, is Jacob's first wife, Leah. Uh, Yeah. listeners may know that Jacob wanted to marry Rachel he's forced to marry Leah and Leah loves him and wants him to to love her as much if not more so than her beautiful sister and so when Leah has children she names them as a wish fulfillment of what she wants for her husband so this would fail what you know it, it, for those who are movie fans you may know of the Beckdale test Beckdale am I pronouncing that correctly not a clue so it, this is um, it, it's a it's a test, so to speak, of of um, and I may be completely butchering this, but of <laughs> it, whether a movie has appropriate um, feminist. Themes and uh, personhood in terms of authority and in terms of freedom, and so like one of the things is: is a woman defined by her relationship to a man? Is she in need of protection, like the you know, like the princess, so to speak? And so I think it's—I'll put it in the show notes with the link. Um, it's super interesting, um, and more and more movies are getting better at it, but it's a classic trope that, of course, it, they're not <laughs> anyway. Um, Leah names her sons to get Joseph's, I'm sorry, to get Jacob's love. And yet, and the other piece, which is important, is that Jewish identity is conferred by the mother. So in according to the laws of Judaism, one is Jewish if they're born to a Jewish mother or, of course, if they convert. Doesn't matter, according to halacha, Jewish law, if the father is Jewish. The mother has to be Jewish. The father could be whatever he is. Um, but those are the exception, not the rule, in terms of women having authority, women having, um, uh, uh, being stakeholders in leadership. Uh, you know, When the Talmud was written, all of the elders were men. When, when the uh, first verse of Pirkei Avot tells us that Moses received the Torah from God and Moses handed it to Joshua and Joshua to the elders and the elders to the men of the great assembly, All of those were men. Um, Women's voices are, if not minimized, if not silenced, then certainly minimized. And so what we do as modern Jews, and I'll stop rambling in a second, Joel, is we create midrashim, a word you've all heard me use before, stories uh, uh, that lift up these women's voices. So uh, an example of that is, where was Sarah when God commanded Abraham to sacrifice Isaac? Like, you think that that is an important part of the story of what the mom and the wife thinks about all this. And so th- this is all to say that it is complicated and difficult. But for me as a Reformed Jew, it's incumbent upon me to take those texts, and we're going to get into some specifics that are difficult, and adapt them to where our morality is today.
0: Does What did they decide? Where was Sarah? at the almost sacrifice of isaac
1: oh well there there's a ton of different midrashim stories there's not one singular thing but I, I and and i can link to something like that i'll type that out now so i remember too was she
0: um, was she yanking but, on abraham's neck was she <laughs> like
1: what the hell are you yeah, doing yeah
0: sharpening the knife uh, yikes
1: you know for, for those of us that believe that the torah the bible was written by people It was most likely men. And so the worldview, the theology, all of it represents a male-centered hierarchy just like society did. Mm -hmm. Um, But that's not where we are, thankfully, in the year 2021. Or at least that's not where some of us are. (laughs) Um, Those two men in the coffee shop that I encountered, sadly, are probably right, right in there.
0: Well, probably the, one of the oddest places for me in the text to even look at are the two creation stories, the, the Genesis 1 versus the Genesis 2-3. In one of them, God creates them male and female uh, in the image of God, and there's no difference between them. They are both created at the same time. They are both created with the spark of Godness in them they are both called very good by god so humanity in its spectrum of sexuality is something that represents god's own self and is the only thing that god calls very good out of all the created things that god calls good genesis 2 and 3 then have a different way of saying it where the adam is created earlier and then all the other creatures and then finally from the rib of the man the woman and there's different language about her as a result of her being from adam's rib what i tend to notice is those who love to lift up strong gender differences natural gender differences they they would use the word natural um god Created differences between genders, um, meaning not just in anatomy or biology or chemistry or hormones, but meaning in worthiness as well. They love to refer to Genesis 2, very seldom refer to Genesis 1. And it's troublesome for me to have people talk about Adam and Eve, Adam and Eve. Well, there is no Adam and Eve in Genesis 1, that's that's not how they're talked about. It's only Adam and Eve, not Adam and Steve, <laughs> in Genesis 2 and 3. and And if you want to make that argument, Genesis 2 can help you kind of if you twist it, but if you hold it as another way of reading what Genesis 1 says. The desire for people to use Scripture to create power differences between gender falls apart. Um, But I find too many religious communities, they don't bother to read the uh, equality across the gender spectrum as much as they love to read the uh, power dynamic and differences across the gender spectrum that Genesis 2 lends itself to.
1: Yeah, that, that's a really good reading of the two creation stories. Um, there's a book, uh, again, put it in the show notes. It, it, I don't know that it relates to those gender differences, but uh, it's called The Lonely Man of Faith by Rabbi Soloveitchik. It is, I, I would say, and I haven't read it in a long time, but it's one of those books that anyone interested in religion should read. It's certainly written with a Jewish perspective, but what he does is he takes those two creation stories and compares them with one another, and it's all and uh, in very interesting ways. But I don't think uh, gender identity is one of them. So uh, Joel, thanks for that chiddish, as we say, that new interpretation. Well,
0: you mentioned the women naming the uh, the child. It's Luke. One, the very first chapter of the Gospel According to Luke, kind of foretells the birth of John the Baptist, and the mother, Elizabeth, and the father is Zechariah. Zechariah is one of the high priests, and he's in the temple one day when he's zapped with the revelation that his wife is, is pregnant, and because of that, he becomes mute. He is not able to speak, and from whatever stage she is in her pregnancy, all the way to where the child is delivered. And the child shows up on the eighth day for circumcision, and the crowd assumes his name will be Zechariah. And the mother, Elizabeth, says, no, his name is John. And the crowd and the, the presiding priest go, Zechariah, and they look at him, and he comes over and he grabs a tablet and he writes, his name is John and he gets his voice back. So there's something about that same, give the voice to the female that the very beginning of the Gospel of Luke reminds. And if a man assumes that his voice is more powerful or more worthy than the woman's voice, he loses it. And when the crowd doesn't believe the woman's voice, but defers to the man, he is still mute until he confirms her voice. So I I notice that connection to the, the gender naming uh, difference that you were lifting up earlier.
1: And Judaism, um, especially traditional Judaism, has this interesting dynamic uh, with regard to uh, women and men that I'll lift up through um, maybe going off script here that it's not a text from the Torah, but rather our liturgy. So in the daily morning liturgy, morning M-O-R, not M-O-U-R, there's the Shacharit service, uh, which is the morning service. And there's a list of blessings. Sometimes we call them uh, the blessings for daily life. Um, And... this is a bit of an aside, but there, there's probably 10 or 15 of them. I, If I thought about it long enough, I'd have the exact number. And – you say them, you don't say them in shul, in synagogue, you, you, or original, you say them by yourself. And so you, the first one is the minute you wake up, you open your eyes, and, and literally the words you say are thank you for 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 being able to see. And so there are all of these things that simply by living, simply by being alive, we have these blessings. And so they are kind of inculcate us with, with an attitude of gratitude, so to speak. And uh, everyone says the same ones except for one where men say – well, I'll start with the women first. Women say, thank you, God, for creating me according to your plan.
0: And Oh, men boy, there's say, the God's plan again. Dang it.
1: Oh, well, yeah. Well, th- what I'm about to say is even worse than that, Joel. And then men say, thank you, God, for not creating me a woman.
0: Oh. And
1: now, and this is said – Now, so since those prayers were created, now they are said in in shul and synagogue. And they're said by lots of people, lots of people who consider themselves, uh, you know, forward thinking, not necessarily egalitarian, but certainly, you know, they don't see themselves as oppressive, right? And the backstory of that text, and by the way, I am not apologizing for it. I'm not defending it at all. But the backstory of that text has to do with you, – you were talking about the def- differences in gender. And here's where you know, traditional Judaism, like other societies, do confuse gender and sexuality, that women get to give birth, right? And, they, and, and giving birth, the act of pregnancy and forming life for, it is equal – to all of the rest of the vote, we have. So we have 613 laws. So when I teach this to kids, I, I, I say, you know, imagine a scale. And, you know, we have 612 of them. And then there's giving birth. And that one, it, it, it's almost like it, it equals out. And so what women are told sometimes when they want to do things like chant Torah or rap to fill in, which is the leather phylacteries, you know, you, sometimes people see, or lead prayer or study Talmud. They, it's it's like this condescending, well, you don't need to do that because you're a woman. You're more spiritual than us. You don't, I mean, the number of times I've heard women are more spiritual than men as what I perceive to be an excuse for not letting women do things that they want to do. Um, and so it's and, and so the reason for saying, thank you God for not creating me a woman, is because as a man you get to do more mitzvot, more laws, more rituals than a woman does, and that's what you're thanking God for. Now, the this might beg the question: Well, rabbi, Jew, Jewish person <laughs> living in the 21st century that considers himself, you know, a, a liberal Jew, how do you deal with it? Very easily. It's not in our prayer book. <laughs> it's absolutely not in our prayer book. Um, and this is one of the. Um, things about Reformed Judaism that I love, it's also difficult, is that there are times where we just, where we abrogate Jewish tradition or law based on our moral principles. And this is a case of that.
0: Gosh, I, there's a text where it describes childbirth as punishment. The pain of childbirth shall be. Also Genesis
1: early chapters.
0: Yeah, the, the, chapter 2 <laughs> creation, 2 and 3 creation story, not the chapter 1. Um, so there it is again. It's it's not a blessing of childbirth, which you could read if there was only Genesis 1. But if you're going to read Genesis 2 and 3, then, oh, uh, childbirth is a curse on you because you're the one that tempted him. And and my guess, my feel is that those kind of... Um, prayerful sentences. Thank you for not making me a woman. Otherwise, I would have been the one that betrayed the man and I would have to go through the pain of childbirth. Uh, that kind of perspective is not remembering the whole of the the Genesis creation story.
1: And there's also, of course, an irony in that the men are the ones making the rules that the women can or cannot follow. So it's kind of an interesting Catch-22 Well, it's it's gaslighting is what it is, right? Yeah, it's gaslighting. It's a troubling catch-22. Yeah, it is gaslighting. That's a good point. One of the reasons, if anyone follows Israeli politics or or Jewish politics, and the two here are blended, um, is that in traditional Judaism, for a couple to get divorced, the man, the husband, has to agree to it. It's not It's not like in America where, you know, if you want out, you can get out, right? I mean, it might be painful, it probably will be painful. I mean, how could it not be? Um, but in traditional Judaism, the man has to give the woman what's called a get, that's the Hebrew document of divorce. So here's the thing, if a woman can't get the get, unintended unfortunately yes. and but but considers herself divorced you know i mean has doesn't speak to this guy you know it, it's not like she committed adultery but you know live maybe even lives in another country if she gets let's say she moves to america and gets legally married in america and has children mm-hmm. those children according to jewish law are considered bastard children because she never got divorced and so again you see how the patriarchy uh, affects not only uh, a woman's sense of identity, but now her children's. Boy, I mean that's a and that that's a whole subject. I mean, but
0: Jesus you, has a lot to say how, how about divorce, but usually it's not about the women. Uh, he will say something like, uh, "You have heard it said that if, uh, in order to get a divorce, the man simply has to give a certificate." Um. But I say to you, um, you shall not divorce her. You you shall not sever from her or let her go, except on the grounds of infidelity. Um, and even that language, you can hear it in there. There is a, a progressive aspect from where it was to where Jesus is talking to it. But in today's language, it really sounds like the woman is property, of of the man and it's all on the man and it really doesn't matter what she wants Um, but in jesus's time and perspective he was saying you can't uh, upgrade to a younger model you can't decide that you are no longer responsible for her just because she disagreed with you on something um you're committed to each other and you are responsible for her all the way and And he was, if you hear it in that context, like you were just describing, they're not disposable. But uh, it's not far enough to reach where we are today. And there's another example of this in John, John chapter 8, where the Pharisees and scribes bring Jesus a woman who has been caught in adultery. Uh, There it is again. Uh, adultery means that she was either still married to another man or unmarried, and she was caught with them, with someone, um, and they stand her before the crowd, and they really are threatening to stone her, um, and it, they use the law. The law of Moses commands us to stone women who do this. What do you say? And this was all to trap Jesus, being inconsistent to the law, and And I love it. He bends down, and he writes something in the sand with his finger, it says. And then he says, anybody here who is without sin is welcome to throw the first stone. And they hear that, and they all walk away. And he says to her, well, woman, (laughs) where did they go? Where are all the people that were going to judge you? And she says, there's no one left, sir. And she, he says, neither do I judge you. Go your way. And and there's something about the re-empowerment, right? The way the law is and the way the law was being interpreted, she was just disposable. It, my question is, where is the dude <laughs> who was caught in adultery too? Why didn't they drag him along? Why? Surely the right. law says something about him too. What? but they just in that culture that's not the way it worked and there's the issue of levirate marriage which is
1: if if a wife's husband dies she's obligated to marry the brother whether she wants to or not if and so there's all these things where the the power
0: dynamic is is so egregious or or the brother is obligated to receive her as yes, yeah. So yes. and it's binding in both directions, but it's clearly a transfer of property, right? She is willed to well, the brother. Even, so
1: the merit. So we talked about the the certificate of divorce. Let's go the other way. The certificate of marriage. The it's called the ketubah, which comes from the word um uh, the root letters that means writing, and you know any any Jewish couple most Jewish couples have a ketubah hanging in their bedroom or somewhere in their house. And the traditional language is very much the groom acquiring the bride. This is where we get the concept of a dowry from. Mm-hmm. And, um, and in Jewish weddings today, if anyone's been to a Jewish wedding that after the bride comes forth, whoever's walking the bride up, the groom, again, traditional Jewish, this isn't a traditional, uh, cisgender wedding. Um, the or sorry, heterosexual wedding. You could still have a cisgender, gay wedding. Um, I'm, I'm still I'm still learning these things. Um, important. <laughs> yes, we're all so over the a,
0: the gender and sexuality. Uh, that's space right. right we
1: the the yes. So, in a traditional wedding, the bride circles the groom seven times, and seven is a special number in Judaism. Of course, it's the number of days in creation, and um, it, it the, seven is one of those numbers that pops up uh, all over the Torah and Bible, um, and in Vegas. One of the thing, and, and what did you say? And
0: in Vegas, and in like <laughs> <Look>, El- <laughs> lucky sevens in Vegas <laughs> all the time.
1: Ow, <gasps> nice or unlucky depending how you're betting. Um, and uh, in, in when I do a wedding, I just did one uh month or two ago. My suggestion to the couple is that it's three, three, and one have the the groom circle the bride, the bride circle the groom, and then you kind of do-si-do around each other one time and symbolizing the idea that you both are acquiring one another. And so again, that is a way that reform liberal Judaism has taken the concept of the ketubah and this ritual of circling and made it applicable to today's norms. Now, we can't always do that. Mm -hmm. So the case in point is the prayer that we just don't say. We're not going to say, make me, you know, thank you, God, for not making me a woman. Um, And so there's various degrees, of course, on how we amend different rituals and different interpretations of texts depending on what they say and what I guess we want them to say.
0: <laughs> I love that. There, and you've you've may have heard it at other weddings. You know who who presents this woman to be married, uh, or who gives this woman to be married, is a traditional way in Christian marriage. A question that clergy often ask of the dad who's walking the bride down the aisle, and um, and he may say, "I do," or her mother and I or something like that I I always talk so far uh, Jill has presided at several same-sex weddings um, and I have exposed myself as happy to do that and glad to do that and willing to do that I just haven't been invited to do that yet, so I'm sure the day is coming. But Jill's way better at them anyway. So if anybody needs one of those, tap Jill. She's she's <laughs> experienced. Uh, but for well, if they're Jewish, they could call me. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> uh, but for me, I always advise the the two. Hey, let's change that language. Um, uh, who blesses the the union of these two? I. You know who who stands beside these two as they enter this new union, and I may ask it of the the bride's uh, family and the uh, the groom's family or the other partner's family. I may, and then I'll often ask for a congregational blessing. So it's it's representing kind of a three from one side and a three from one side and a one from everybody that's gathered here um, as a way to remove that dowry transfer of property aspect.
1: One of the things that I think we do as, you know, liberal religionists, if that's an expression, is I think we lift up those areas of religious life where where there is a uh, a power, a self-reliance and an autonomy but, but again, those are the exception, not the rule. The, the one, um, and this is one of the texts that was in our show notes, is this is actually a text that I'm guessing um, certainly Jewish listeners may not know about. It's not one of the texts that's taught often in religious school. Um, and it's the Daughters of Zelophefod, um, it, which is a little bit of a mouthful. And... In short and I'll put a, a link in the show notes for those that want to read more but this is in the Torah um, shortly after um, the revolt of Korah there was a uh, uh, their father died and the land was unspoken for the the land that was owned and the daughters want wanted the land for themselves but of course women can't own land and they beseeched Moses and the the judges and they got it um but it but the fact that that is an exception and that the fact that we even have to take note of that shows how rare that was and in some cases still is in terms of a you know religious mindset i mean there mm-hmm. there are still jews out there there are still reformed jews that will say in a larger synagogue where there's multiple clergy I want the male rabbi. And that's not okay anymore. Yes.
0: It it happens here as well that, I mean, Caitlin and I are, you know, we're both pastors of this church, but she and I are very aware that we are constantly trying to embody and symbolize a mutual presence of pastoral authority, leadership, all the above, because in our culture, there is a still... A linger. There's plenty of people who do fully receive male or female pastoral leadership equally. There are some who say and want to receive both equally, but they don't yet embody it equally. They still kind of defer to the older male as opposed to the younger female. And then there, believe it or not, dang it, there are still some who are very clear that there's a difference. Um. There's a story where at my very first church, uh, what, a couple that was he, – he was on the pastor nominating committee that called me to that church, and he and his wife took uh, Jill and me and our three boys out, out to lunch after worship, not long after I'd started. And the wife said something like, well, I, she found out Jill was still in seminary and also in training to become a pastor, and she said, well, I just don't think women should be a pastor. And Jill asked her, well, have you ever had a a pastor that you've really, really loved? And she said, well, no, not really, come to think of it. And then Jill said, well, maybe you should try a woman. Now, there are some texts that Christians use violently regarding men and women in marriage. And... One of them is from Ephesians, and maybe, I don't know.
1: When you say violently, do you mean, and I know you're going to explain it, but do you mean physically violently or just kind of a violation of morality kind
0: of thing? It has been used to justify male violence against his own wife. Um, mm. The text in Ephesians 5 is, Wives, submit to your husbands or be subject to your husbands just as you are to the Lord, the husband is the head of the wife, just as Christ is the head of the church. So that text is used in a lot of Christian circles to justify male dominance in the family. Um, His career choices, woman, you have to submit your career to him and you have to go with him and you have to follow him. And your job is different than his, and if he needs to go, you go. You defer. You submit. You are subject to him. Now, what people don't often read (laughs) is the line right before that and right after that. The line after that is husbands love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her in order to make her holy. Um, In other words— Think about the way that Christians talk about what Christ did for the people of the, of the world. Self-sacrifice. So husbands, do not use your power over a wife any more than Christ used power over the people. Christ submitted and sacrificed on behalf of the people. And the line right before wives submit to your husbands is, Be subject to one another. There's a, a very equality blah, 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 equalizing, equalizing phrase right before that, be subject to one another. Then it says, wives, be subject to your husbands. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church. So the equality of that is way stronger than Christians realize. But that's because a lot of male preachers <laughs> in the Christian side of things Never quote the before and after. They just quote the middle. Wives, be subject to your husbands. Your husband's the head of the house, so you have to submit. And and I can't stand it when I hear uh, Christian pastors use this text in such a an obnoxious and untrue way. So playing just
1: kind of a, a textual uh, interpreter for a second, isn't it? even though there is context to it and the before and after certainly gives it a, a bit of, of beneficial context, right? It still does say this problematic thing. Yes. So is it kind of, and, and I'm, I, I ask you the same question I ask myself with, with these kinds of texts, is it, do you feel like it's theological gymnastics when you kind of have to find an interpretation that's more palatable or do you believe that that is actually what the text says
0: so i look at it this way what was the culture into which this text was written the culture into which this text was written was women are property they are owned and disposable i can i can receive her and i can let her go if i write on a certificate she is dismissed then she is dismissed, and she is no longer my responsibility. I have no – I don't ever have to sacrifice for her. She has to keep me happy so that I allow her to live under my roof. This text was written into that kind of culture. And what it said to the men and the women, because those were the only marriages that we were talking about at that time, was okay wives yes honor the cultural norm here be subject to your husbands and yes in our patriarchal society the husband is the head of the household fine the new stuff that it adds is be subject to one another and husbands love your wife just like christ loved the church that's new stuff that the culture is not used to hearing back then. And it doesn't ask for the wives to change. It asks for the husbands to change a lot. So I don't see it as gymnastics to try to pick that text up and apply it today in even more uh, equal expectations in gender-based relationships because I see this text As demanding a move from radical inequality towards equality. And if I keep pushing on that trajectory, I feel like my interpretation is in sync with the trajectory of the text itself.
1: When you say that's new stuff, do you mean historically it was written later Or it's new in that that's that's a newer morality that we ascribe ourselves to.
0: What I meant was in that culture, they were very accustomed to hearing wives be subject. Uh,
1: I understand. In that culture,
0: it was was shockingly weird for them to hear be subject to one another or husbands love your wives in the same way Christ loved slash sacrificed for the church.
1: Got it. So you're just mapping that out to our time. And so it goes – it would go even farther.
0: Yes. And there's another one that happens here, too. It, it's This one's used all the time to justify why women shouldn't be preachers or teachers. It's First Timothy 2. Dang it. Uh, and in this odd little lever, letter, they describe how men should pray – And should be able to do so, you know, to hold out hands without anger or argument. And that women in these houses of prayer should dress themselves modestly in suitable clothing, uh, not with their hair braided or with jewelry, gold or pearls or expensive clothes. If they want to dress up, they should dress themselves up in good works. And then it says this one, ouch, let a woman learn in silence with full submission. I permit no woman to teach or to have authority over a man. She is to keep silent. Adam was formed first, then Eve. And Adam wasn't That's like deceived. Two again, yep. Adam was not deceived, but the woman was deceived and became the transgressor. So in that odd little text, there's a bunch of problems, tons of problems. But in that time and culture, there were houses of prayer where women were not allowed at all, only men. The women were not even invited to that house of prayer. But this letter to that culture where women were not allowed at all said, Guys, make some room. The women are allowed now. Okay, they're not going to talk. They're going to sit in the back. They're, gonna, they're not going to distract you with perfume and jewelry or anything like that. But they're present. They're in the room now. And they don't have to hear the discussions through their man. They get to hear them directly now. Um, and then the problematic stuff at the end, right? So there was a progressive aspect to this Scripture itself even though it's used today super conservatively to maintain patriarchy.
1: And Judaism does something similar with regard to a, woman, a woman's voice specifically, which is why this is where we get the Jewish law that Jew, that women can't chant from the Torah or lead a service, because a woman's voice is so sexually arousing. That it will distract the man from his valiant efforts. I'm being a little bit, you know, the, for the metaphor, but it will distract uh, men from their prayers, and so therefore, um, women uh, are not allowed to be heard as as a as a voice. And it's the same reason why in a traditional uh, place of worship. That women and men are, uh, do not sit together. It's because again, the woman will be so distracting. Now you can make a modern, I think there is something to be said for maybe sitting somewhere you're not used to or even not sitting with your spouse and kind of being alone with your thoughts. But that, that is a, that is egalitarian from that standpoint. This is not. No. This is women you go over there. And if you, I don't know if Joel, if you've ever been to, Older Jewish, uh, sanctuaries, you know, kind of historic sanctuaries like in Venice and other places in Europe. And of course, this still exists. Yeah. Yeah. So this, of course. So this still exists in America too. But many synagogues where the women sit, it wouldn't be like, okay, men, you have this half of the room and women, you have this, this half. It's okay, men, you're five feet away from the speaker right in front and women, you're going to be upstairs in a balcony. Where the walls are so high that you may not even be able to see mm-hmm. and that, uh, that sort of thing. Uh, and all because of this idea that it'll be too distracting.
0: Yes. Men are so weak. <music> there's one other great story, New Testament, my last one for gender issues. Uh, there's a story where where Jesus is somewhere, and a woman, a Syrophoenician woman, comes. Um, so she's Gentile. She's not Jew. But she comes, and she begs him to help heal her daughter. And Jesus says something unexpected. He says, Let the children be fed first. It's not fair to take children's food and throw it to the dogs. The assumption there being, um, in, in this story from Mark, that the children are God's children, the people of Israel, and Gentiles are the dogs. And she answers him even the dogs get the crumbs. And he is corrected by her, and the daughter is healed. And, and it's, there's something about his way of saying that, that he regretted. And, and she taught him something about even the way the culture was affecting his way of seeing the system, uh, the gender system around him. And, and he, he learned it and he didn't withhold power. To heal her, he released it um, through her to her daughter, and and I like that um, th- that the only story where a- all the scribes and Pharisees and everybody that tried to catch Jesus and correct him, none of them did it. This Gentile woman did, and and I love that story um, about gender in the in the New Testament.
1: Yeah, you have all these beautiful parables in the New Testament with. <laughs> The Torah and Bible is much more narrative. We get some of the parable kind of stuff in our in the Talmud, but not, not in the Bible. Uh, I always enjoy hearing those and specifically your takes on them. Um, well, we solved gender problems. <laughs> the two straight white men solved all gender problems. There is a
0: real <laughs> issue there. I'm so glad you said that out loud. I, and I hope everybody has heard us. From our own place of real privilege and, and enculturation, I hope you've heard both Eric and me do our best to recognize that that we understand some of the difference between gender and sexuality, and we do not think binary um, male-female on these topics or um, cis and homo on, on these topics. So I hope you hear us leaning into the wider and bigger reality that we feel God has revealed.
1: Absolutely. And beautifully said. Thank
0: you for joining us on the Religion Podcast today, where a rabbi and a reverend walk into a podcast and talk real about religion. I'm Reverend Joel Talbert, and on behalf of Rabbi Eric Linder and all the Religion fans out there, we thank you for being with us today and invite you to send us any feedback or suggestions or topic ideas to religionpodcast at gmail.com. Until next time, keep it real.